I'm Leonard Lopate. It's been understood for decades that our world is on the brink of environmental collapse, and yet the only solutions that have been implemented have been small and convenient feel-good initiatives that avoid unpleasant truths about the root causes of our impending disaster. Two of today's most prominent writers in the field of sustainability studies, Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen, address these crises in their new book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. It's from University of Notre Dame Press and brings Robert Jensen, Professor Emeritus in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas, to our show now. Welcome. Well, Leonard, it's great to be with you. Thanks. You wrote a book about your co-author called The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson. Did that lead to this collaboration? Yeah, uh, I often describe Wes as the most important environmentalist that most people have never heard of. Wes Jackson, who just turned 86, uh, was a Kansas farm boy who got a PhD in genetics, went on to a teaching career, but then in the 1970s decided the university system couldn't contain his ideas. So he founded something called the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, which is known now mostly for its research on perennial grains, which may turn out to be one of the the main ways people feed themselves in the future. But Wes is also one of those expansive thinkers, um, creative mind. And so the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson was my attempt to kind of, I, I called it Wes's greatest hits, take some of his main ideas and make them available to a general audience. So for the past 10 years or so, I've been working with Wes, uh, both to document the work he's done and then in this new book to talk about what's coming in the future. And you write that you had many phone conversations. <laughs> so this book was a kind of a phone collaboration? Yeah, Wes is one of those old school guys, doesn't do email. So he just picks up the phone and calls. And and we've had this uh, really wonderful conversation that's been going on for years now. And uh, I'm in northern New Mexico now after retiring from the University of Texas at Austin. And he's in Kansas. Uh, before COVID, I was able to go up there and we would work together. But uh, lately, it's been on the phone. And this book really developed uh over almost daily phone calls for the better part of a couple of years. Being in northern New Mexico is a reminder that uh, civilizations die because uh, the Anasazis inhabited Mm -hmm. much of that area, and there are no Anasazis anymore. So also, of course, the wildfires that were burning Mm -hmm. uh, up until the recent rains are another reminder of how easily what we humans build can be wiped away quickly. Uh, I I live outside the the town of Taos now, and uh, it's a very rural area and a very interesting place to be thinking about this because both the traditions, for instance, the irrigation system, the Asakia system, which many people know about, is a incredibly creative human endeavor to to grow food here. But it's also a very stark landscape and, and in some ways not very hospitable to humans. And so, I'm always ponder, uh, kind of pondering both things, how creative we can be to live in so many places and how easily uh, our, uh, our attempts can, can go by the by. Just watching the news on TV makes it clear that the climate crisis has already progressed beyond simple or non-disruptive solutions. You say the end result will be apocalyptic, at least according to your title. Why use that word, which has a religious connotation, even in your title? Yeah, we always want to make it clear we're not preaching the end of the world uh, Leonard, I'm not going to start talking about, you know, lakes of fire and rivers of blood. Don't worry. Uh, not going that direction. But uh, well, you kind I'm of all, admit to not being believers in God, in fact, in the yeah, book. So Wes and I both come out of kind of conventional Protestant backgrounds. And of course, that tradition shapes the way we think in certain ways. But we make it clear that we're not offering supernatural claims. We aren't traditional believers in that sense, but we both find religious language often very useful. Uh, you know, after all, religion is 
both a repository of some of the best wisdom of of people, as well as sometimes uh, the worst of people. So we're selective in how we use it. But I've always liked the word apocalypse because it doesn't actually mean the end of the world. Uh, apocalypse is from the Greek, revelation from Latin. They both mean uh, an unveiling, a coming to clarity, the ability to see more clearly. And I think in that sense, as I've been saying now for about 10 years, uh, we're all apocalyptic now, or at least we should be. We should be thinking not about the end of the world. After all, you know, planet Earth will still be around after we're gone. But we do need to think about the end of systems, systems like capitalism. Uh, and so we need to come to a new kind of clarity about the end of those systems. And that's why I'm, I'm fond of the word apocalypse. Uh, although, as you point out, it does take a, a little footnote to make sure people know what you're talking about. Well, if it's not religious, did you intend your book to be both the sociological and philosophical examination of the climate crisis? I think that's exactly right. Uh, Wes is kind of a natural philosopher by inclination, if not necessarily by training. And uh, before I was a professor, I was a journalist. And so I, I tend to always be just trying to detail what's on the ground. And the book is kind of a marriage of those two disciplines, uh, trying to think differently about the, the hole we've dug ourselves into, that is, we human beings collectively, uh, and trying to, as you pointed out, say some things bluntly, uh, talk about things that are not commonly understood or discussed. And, and in this, I guess you could say the book is kind of overall a challenge to denialism. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of denialism in this culture. And, and we don't mean just on the right. Uh, we don't just mean climate denial in the traditional way we understand that. But on the center and the left, too, I think a lot of denial of kind of harsh realities. And as a result, uh, too often a kind of magical thinking about how we are going to, uh, or how people wish we are capable of getting ourselves out of these holes. You argue that longstanding assumptions about economic growth and technological progress are no longer tenable. Yeah. So is it a matter of just doing a better job? Well, you know, I come from the political left, uh, longtime supporter of WBAI. Uh, and so the, the end of growth, I think, uh, is not that difficult an idea for a lot of us to get our hands around. Certainly the kind of growth that capitalism has always demanded uh, is no longer tenable. But as you point out, we also challenge um, the reliance on technology to solve these problems. For a long time, Wes has been talking about technological fundamentalism, which he has suggested might be the most dangerous fundamentalism. By that, we simply mean uh, a belief in the ability of high energy, high technology to solve all our problems. And what makes it fundamentalist particularly is that people are willing to believe that this high energy, high technology can not only solve all problems, including the problems created by previous uses of high energy, high technology. So uh, we think that a decent human future, in fact, perhaps any human future at all, has to let go of that particular kind of fundamentalism, the belief that technology is always going to, you know, magically save us. So wind and solar are not necessarily good solutions? They, wind and solar are central to the human future. This is not a rejection of renewable energy technologies. It's a recognition of two things. One is that no combination from our perspective, and I, I think there's good research to demonstrate this, no combination of renewable energy sources, wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, whatever it is you want to pr propose, no combination of them can replace the incredibly dense energy of coal, oil, and natural gas. And that's something we're gonna have to come to terms with. We believe that research and development on renewable energy should continue. It's an important source of energy for the future. But we have to recognize it's not going to allow us to continue to run the world. The world's infrastructure is based on coal, oil, and gas. It's based on the incredibly dense energy of fossil fuels. And that means that we have to start thinking not just about replacing those energy sources, but living with less. Uh, kind of the bumper sticker 
summary of the book, which we use throughout it, is fewer and less. We have to start thinking about two things that people don't want to think about, which is fewer people and less energy, fewer people and less stuff on this planet. Uh, because nobody has, you know, a, a, a program to magically get us to fewer and less in a humane and decent way. I think people tend to think, let's not talk about it. But in this book, we want to talk about it. You know, Wes and I are both, both old. Uh, and so I think it's sometimes the, the role of old people to say things that, uh, that people don't want to hear. If we lose friends, that's okay. Uh, you know, we don't have that much longer to live. Well, you mentioned that it's a global problem. Hasn't the yeah. UN Secretariat adopted a 10-year climate action plan aimed at achieving a 45% a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and, and sourcing 60% of electricity from renewable energy by 2030? Uh, is that likely? And uh, is is that just uh, like just eye in the sky a doomed approach yeah well i think there are two things about a lot of these plans first of all uh we're not harshly critical of plans like this uh like i said we don't have some off-the-shelf program that's going to magically solve this pro problem but there are a couple of problems one is obviously these require political will that we don't currently see really anywhere. I mean, European countries have done much better than the US, for instance. But the kind of dramatic reductions we're talking about are going to be politically very difficult. The second question is, can they be achieved? If magically, you know, the American political system changed and sanity became the norm, well, would it even be possible? And, and we think there are limits uh, to what can be achieved through policy and technology, which is why we want to start talking about this world of fewer and less. You know, one of the hardest things for anybody to propose is limits on our material standard of living. I mean, how many politicians want to go in front of a, a crowd and say, I can guarantee you that I'm going to reduce your standard of living by 50 percent. I mean, it's just not a winning solution. So, again, these conversations have to start happening. Maybe they're bound to start at the margins where in some sense this book will live, but we do think it's important to, to begin talking bluntly like this. I'm speaking with Robert Jensen, co-author with Wes Johnson of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity, Publisher University of Notre Dame Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. What about some of the proposals we've seen from the Biden administration and some members of Congress? Well, when we, we talk, I, I mentioned the denialism. You know, the right wing is in deep denial. Uh, more and more people on the right are acknowledging climate change is real, but they see no reason to change any policy. They want in, more people to be born. Right. But. They want, <laughs> and, and they want more fossil fuel. There's a kind of implicit uh, assumption that somehow magically we're going to find solutions to all this. So that denialism on the right, as we all know, is deep. The well, in, in some cases, isn't it just a matter of economics? For example, yeah. uh, Joe Manchin's positions are often explained by the fact that his state produces oil and coal. Right. There's a lot of sources of denialism. For some people on the right, it's theological. They believe that, you know, God is going to deliver us to a fate that they can't challenge. Maybe Joe Manchin is thinking about his own bank account. Uh, the sources of denial can vary. Uh, sometimes it can just be ideological fanaticism, but the denial is is there. Well, in the political center, you know, let's talk about the few sane Republicans that are still around and the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party. There's another kind of denialism. Of course, no one in that political formation denies the reality of human-caused human climate change. But there's kind of a belief that, you know, if we just do a little fine-tuning on a market economy and keep pursuing technology, that we're going to... we're gonna Ele Electric find, cars find and things like yeah. that. And I think electric vehicles are actually a very good example of a failed project. So uh, 
I'm perfectly happy to see electric cars replace, you know, gas powered cars. But the problem really isn't the power source. The problem is too many cars and a car based infrastructure. So you could replace every petroleum burning car on the road today with electric vehicles, and we would still have an ecological crisis and a climate crisis because, of course, the batteries needed for those cars uh, don't, you know, magically come from the sky. Mm -hmm. They're the product of, you know, mining and extraction and manufacturing, which itself requires an enormous amount of fossil fuels. It's very hard to to mine or with batteries. Okay, so the problem is that too many of us drive too much. That's where we have to start talking about limits, that we have to rethink the way we travel. And, and here I don't just mean rethink, you know, mass transit instead of personal car ownership. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I've lived in cities with good mass transit and cities without it, and I much prefer Cities with mass transit. Well, there's no but, mass transit in, in northern New Mexico. I know. I've been no, there. Nor, nor was there very much in Austin, Texas, when I lived there, which is a you know city of a million people. So it's not that I'm against mass transit. It's that the solution to the car-based culture problem is not only more mass transit. It means traveling less. Uh, in a very short amount of time, you know, people in the affluent societies like the United States have gotten used to being able to travel at will. And that's simply going to change, um, you know. Well, COVID changed things a little bit, but it doesn't seem to have really had much of an impact on the environment. No, it, it for a brief period, there was less of that travel. Uh, for some of us, it was a relief. Uh, and for some of us, I'm one of them. Uh, I'm not going to go back to travel. I, I've reflected a lot on how much I traveled and how much of it was, you know, necessary in any sense. And I'm rethinking all of that. But it's, of course, it's not just a question of individual choice. I think we have to realize that we can't keep putting money as a society into the infrastructure to allow this kind of travel. Uh, we have to learn, as Wes said once, to stay home and be decent. Uh, and that's going to be a big change. Uh, you know, one of the things about about human beings uh, is that we we become very used to certain kinds of material comforts, and they become very difficult to dislodge. I, I love to quote the the writer Wallace Stegner, who once talked about the things once possessed that can't be done without. In other words, things we never even imagined we needed become essential very quickly. Now. Again, that's a particular problem in affluent societies. And the United States, of course, has a lot to answer for. But it's not simply a, a Western or a capitalist uh, or an American problem. Uh, this is actually, I think, a problem of human nature. And, and in the book, we talk about human nature, which is a subject that's not always popular on the left, because there's been so much, I think, abuse of and distortion of human nature especially in capitalism, to justify really morally unacceptable results. But we do have to recognize we're an organism. We're a, a carbon-seeking uh, entity, just like all organisms. And there is a bit of biology here beyond history. And, and that's one way to sum up the book. We take seriously history. That is how human choices have shaped uh, the world we live in. But we also talk about natural forces, the biology that is also relevant to understanding why we're in this place and how we might get out of it. Well, before we get to that, and I do want to address that, I was just following up on some of the other things that have been happening in the news. Uh, what about the recent Supreme Court decision regarding the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate carbon emissions from existing power plants? That that sort of thing will make matters worse. But is that just part of the same old, same old? Well, it's part of the same old, same old in the sense that the political right for a very long time has been trying to roll back even the modest protections that a general kind of New Deal politics has brought into into existence. So and why do you think that is? After all, they have to live on Earth as well. They, they, they have children and, and grandchildren. You know, that's an interesting question that comes up a lot is how can people uh, 
essentially ignore the material realities of the world, even though those material realities affect them as well. Well, of course, we know part of it is simply that affluence protects people. And I think I, I don't pretend to, to psychologize rich people. <laughs> I haven't known that many rich people for one thing, but there is a certain, I think, I'll call it a delusion that comes with wealth. And it's the belief that that wealth can guarantee uh, a happy future. It, the belief that wealth can protect you from anything. And you're pointing out that, of course, wealth can't protect you from the laws of physics and chemistry. Uh, why do people embrace a delusional thinking? Well, that's beyond the scope of my competence. But we can certainly see the pattern that when there are difficult realities to face, there are delusions aplenty to keep people from facing them. And wealth is one of those. And I think that must explain a, a good part of why the political right continues to pursue uh, policies that are not only morally unjust when we think about the, the question of equity, equality, and a, a decent human life for everyone, the dignity of all humans, which, uh, you know, is part of the struggle against the right. But why the right ignores those material realities is, is a troubling uh, fact, but a fact it is. Now, the book makes the case that the situation isn't just a recent development. Yeah. Haven't humans been damaging the environment since we emerged around 300,000 years ago, first as hunters and then, as your book points out, most especially with the advent of agriculture? Sure. I mean, human beings uh, are not perfect or perfectible. We, we're, we're not saintly. And so you can go back in human history and let's say a, a foraging society that overhunted uh, and maybe even drove some species to extinction. That's We're still, still doing it. We're still yeah, killing off yeah. species. Okay, so that's a debate about prehistory, how often that happened. But the point is that was always a localized uh, problem. If there were human abuses of ecosystems, uh, they weren't number one on a par with what we see today, of course. And number two, they weren't global in nature. So human beings are capable of doing nasty things, both to each other and to other living things. I don't think anyone doubts that. Uh, but as you point out, it was really the invention of agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago that changed the way that human beings related to the world. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about this on the left, but I do think the history is pretty clear. Uh, Wes has for a long time, and my co-author Wes Jackson has said, that agriculture was the moment when humans became a species out of context. That is, millions of years of evolution in the genus Homo had uh, placed us in a sustainable relationship with the larger living world. Uh, and agriculture broke that relationship. And so you're absolutely right. We've been drawing down the ecological capital of the planet. And by we, I mean humanity in general for 10,000 years now. The history of especially annual grain agriculture, we should, we should note that there's a lot of different types of agriculture adapted to different geographies and climates, but the annual grain agriculture that is growing the crops that human beings now rely on for probably about two thirds of our calories, crops like wheat, rice, uh, those are ecologically very destructive when you, especially when you plow every year. And so this is not a problem merely of, you know, the, the American Midwest, where soil erosion is a dramatic problem. It was the story of Greece. It was a story of Rome. Uh, this has been a problem since human beings started creating the surpluses of energy in the form of those annual grains. And that was actually one of Wes's most important contributions to the sustainable agriculture movement to talk not only about problems in agriculture, you know, problems like over-dependence on chemicals and things like that, but the basic problem of agriculture, as Wes put it, that agriculture did put us on this ecologically destructive path. And so while it is a problem that goes back for thousands of years, we can also at the same time realize that the, the advent of the fossil fuel era and the economic system of 
capitalism dependent on endless growth has dramatically magnified the, the scope of the problem. So we're dealing with something that has been around for a while and intensified to a degree that these hard truths that Wes and I want to talk about are now, I think, unavoidable. But agriculture didn't lead to the fall of, uh, of Greece or the Roman Empire. Well, not in any simple way, but the story of Rome, for instance, is the story of exhausted soil. So there are a lot of examples where society... And, and, and that still is a problem in Italy today? Sure, it's a problem everywhere. You know, the, there's uh, estimates that if we continue at the current levels of soil erosion, in some ways, I think soil erosion, as a quick footnote, is probably the most dramatic ecological crisis that people don't talk much about. Uh, you know, we lose soil because of these farming methods uh, far beyond replacement levels. Uh, there's a, a wonderful book called Dirt by a, a geologist, David Montgomery, that points out that at current levels of soil erosion, in a little over a century, we would literally have no topsoil. Uh, and of course, without topsoil, there's no food. Uh, so this is a dramatic problem. Now, people might say, well, then how come there's 8 billion people on the planet and enough food to feed them all if we were to equitably, equitably distribute that food? Well, of course, that's back to the story of fossil fuels. Uh, the the so-called green revolution, the technologies over the last century or so that have dramatic, dramatically expanded the yields of these crops is a, an outgrowth of the use of fossil fuels. And that is a temporary fix. So when people say, well, look, we keep expanding the food supply. That's true. We've done some pretty amazing uh, things with the increase in yields per acre, but they are a temporary fix. Uh, Wes calls them a kind of chemotherapy on the land. And so now we have this strange situation where we have less topsoil and less fertile topsoil as we produce more food. Well, that is simply a system that can't go on forever. Well, uh, and among your suggested solutions is natural systems agriculture. What's that? A natural systems agriculture is the specific version of sustainable agriculture that Wes and the plant breeders and ecologists at the Land Institute developed. Wes made, this is a digression from the current book, but very important. Uh, Wes made the observation uh, about 40 years ago that this dependence on annual grains and plowing, which exacerbates soil erosion, was a serious problem. So he asked a simple question, instead of growing annual grains in monocultures, mm. That is, if you go to Iowa, you'll see field of nothing but corn, fields of nothing but soybeans. Instead of annuals in monocultures, he said, why can't we grow perennial grains, which then wouldn't require plowing every year, in polycultures, in diverse cultures? Now, there's a lot of science in this and a lot of work that's been done and will continue to be done with plant breeding to see if we can get perennial grains in polycultures that produce sufficient yields to feed people? Uh, that's a, a technical question, an empirical question, but Wes labels that system natural systems agriculture. And it's one of what we would call the agroecology approaches. So uh, permaculture, a lot of people who, who garden might know permaculture mm. comes under this uh, agroecology. A lot of indigenous and traditional farming systems would be part of the agroecological agro uh, movement, and natural systems is one of those. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Robert Jensen. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show 
With a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. Uh, that's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950 during today's show. But don't forget to make that $50 contribution in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And um, now I'm returning to my guest, who is uh, was a professor? I guess you're a professor emeritus at the School of Journalism, University of Texas. But you've left now, and you're just writing books. Right. I, I always joke that emeritus is a Latin word that means "thank God that fi- that guy finally retired." So, uh, I spent 26, you know, really productive years at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, but have retired and and now get to spend time uh, on these kind of writing projects. Now, a listener, uh, before I get to some of the, my questions, a listener uh, wrote in to ask, what's your guest's opinion on new nuclear? Can nuclear energy provide enough energy? Can conservation and better insulated homes make a difference? So let's do conservation first. It's crucial, of course. Uh, we, we are, uh, a lot of our infrastructure was built when we were drunk on cheap energy and, and that's what people often call the low hanging fruit, you know, insulating, uh, installing windows, all that sort of stuff. And it's very important. The nuclear question, uh, I take my lead here from people much smarter than me who I trust. It's a, it's a hot topic in the environmental movement. There are people who consider themselves environmentalists who are advocating for nuclear power. I'm not one of them. Uh, I think there are some challenges in nuclear power that are not going to be solved. Most obviously, the fact that we still don't know what to do with the waste. Here, I'm going to put in a plug for a a book that's coming soon, I hope, from a friend of mine, a physicist turned political critic, M.V. Ramana, who is the person I know who is most educated on the nuclear question. And Ramana says, for many reasons, both technological and economic, nuclear power is simply not a solution. And we need to abandon it, not continue to pretend it's going to solve our problems. I should mention that we're discussing a book called An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity from University of Notre Dame Press. Now, are you arguing that our future won't be defined by expansion, but by contraction? Exactly. Uh, You know, I was born in 1958, and so I have lived through a period of time until, until very recently in which the question was always, how do we deal with more? How do we, for instance, distribute that endless bounty more equitably? That's an important question that we on the left have long talked about. But the the background assumption was always more, more and more, more of everything, more energy, more material comforts, all of that. Uh, I have lived most of my life with the assumption of expansion. And I think what Wes and I are arguing very strongly is it's time to stop thinking about the future that way. Uh, the the future is is going to be, whether we like it or not, a world of permanent contraction on both the population and the consumption front. That is, there are going to be fewer people. How is that and, going to happen? Uh, well, uh, the, the current rate of population growth around the world uh, is, is expanding. Yeah, it's not expanding quite as fast. There is a slowing of that rate. But this is one of those, uh, we, we say there are four hard questions, and one of them is, the question of population. This is also something that on the left, we haven't discussed much, sometimes for perfectly sensible reasons. For instance, the the history of the conversation about population control has often been dominated by racists, by eugenicists, by people who are anti-immigrant. Wes and I clearly separate ourselves from that reactionary approach to population that basically says, we who gots need to keep, and that means fewer people who don't got. That's not the solution. But we are recognizing that population is a central ecological question. And and we always we suggest it always must be tied not only to the number of people. The raw number of people in the world isn't that important if you don't understand how much people are consuming. So we make the simple suggestion that 8 billion people on the planet 
at the aggregate level of consumption, that is the total level of consumption, again, recognizing that consumption is not equitably distributed, and that is a serious problem. But 8 billion people on this planet at this level of consumption simply cannot be sustained. Now, there's a debate about this too, including on the left, but the ecologists I trust and read suggest there is going to be a correction. How now, do you slow down population growth? Well, that is the, especially considering the fact that now there's discussion in this country yeah. about outlawing yeah. uh, drugs that will even uh, <laughs> that yeah. can be used to prevent conception. Yeah. And I think that's another reason people don't like to talk about population because there is nobody has a plan for how to get from eight billion to a sustainable level of the human population, and it's. Not surprising nobody has a plan. We've never had to face this as a species before. So clearly, uh, population control is partly a question of available contraception, abortion rights, all that sort of thing. But even with that, we don't have a way to, to think about this, especially if you think about the need to reduce the human population in dramatic scale. Let's just for purposes of discussion say we need to cut the human population in half. Well, in the time frame available, it's very difficult to imagine that. Now, people sometimes tell me, well, if you don't have a plan, you don't have a solution, and you can't even imagine it, why talk about it? Well, I think because if we as a, a species don't engage in some sort of rational planning about this, there are non-human forces that are going to, to do it for us. And of course, those forces don't care about values like justice and humanity and the dignity of all people. So, what Wes and I are saying is not here, follow our lead here, we have the solution. We're saying no solution is possible if we don't start talking about it. And it's difficult to talk about, not only because birth control is a difficult and contentious issue, but we also have to talk about death control. You know, modern technology, not only medical technology, but improvements in sanitation and all sorts of things have meant that people live much longer Right. Uh, and can that go on forever? Can we continue to use society's resources to extend human life in the way we do? Well, you know, it's hard enough to talk about birth control, but start talking about, you know, a, a collective effort to deal with the fact that maybe we're not all going to live as long as we have been. Uh, then you see that this is a very difficult question. And, and I want to point out again it's not just a question of numbers, it's a question of consumption, which is also why people don't like to talk about it, because talking about limits on human consumption, collectively imposed limits, not just that I decide, oh, I'm going to use a little less, but you and I, Leonard, decide that we're going to keep each other from using more. Well, all of these are incredibly difficult, not only political questions in the sense of policy, they're difficult human questions. We don't know how to do this because we've never had to do it before. My guest is Robert Jensen, co-author with Wes Jackson of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity from University of Notre Dame Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And along the line of what you've just been saying, you ask what you describe as four hard questions. One, how much smaller would a sustainable size for the human population to be? Two, what's the appropriate scale of our communities? Three, is maintaining our current infrastructure and energy-dependent society even within our scope of abilities? And, and four, how much faster do we need to move in order to avoid even greater catastrophes? Now, I'll be quiet for a while. And I'll let you address all of that. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it's not difficult to understand why we call them the four hard questions. So we talked a bit about population and consumption, the size question. What is the appropriate scale of human community? Well, we live in a nation, you and I, Leonard, which has 330 million people. And Wes and I argue that is well beyond the scale of an appropriate human community. We have to remember we evolved as a species in foraging bands, you know, probably no more than 50, 100 people at the most. And it's hard to organize 300 million people in a coherent political or, uh, community. But, but and, can and I interrupt not, for just a second? Because yeah, I live in a city of 8 million mm -hmm. people, but I would say that 
uh, to a large degree, it breaks up into small communities. Right, right it does. And those are the, the, the size of human communities in which we can have, for instance, meaningful democratic interaction. Uh, when you get beyond that scale, it gets very hard to to not only um, you know execute but imagine how we're going to to do this. So, you know, we now live in a world of nation states. We live in a world of cities, as you point out, of millions of people. Uh, how are we going to move back to a scale of human communities that fits better with our evolutionary history? Uh, you know, if you think about intentional communities, whether they're religious or secular. They understood that if you wanted to have a truly democratic, decent human community, there were limits on the size. And so that's why you see, you know, communes and such things that don't get very big. Even those are hard to to make work. But uh, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about political polarization today and the dysfunctional nature of American politics. We're saying it's not only a question of the moment. It's a question of political organizations of this size. Are they really workable? And if they're not, how are we going to change? Well, here we go. How do you move from a nation state of 330 million people to maybe, let's say, political units based, as some people have proposed, on watersheds? You know, organize people politically along shared resources like, you know, a river system. Well, how are we going to make that move? Once again, Wes and I don't have an off-the-shelf plan. But if we don't start talking about these things, it's going to be impossible to imagine solutions. And we we do have to remember, you know, the nation state is not an enduring part of human history. It's a fairly recent phenomenon. And anything that humans invented, we can, you know, we can change. Well, you look into how geographic determinism has shaped our past and led to our current situation. What's geographic determinism? This is another thing that is often contentious on the left because it seems to suggest that human beings aren't in control of our own fate, that it's geography, climate, and environmental conditions that shape societies. Yet there's a certain way in which that's self-evident. I mean, you know, societies around the world are quite different. Why are they different? After all, we are one species, you know, in biological terms, our genetics. We're all pretty much the same animal no matter where we live. Yet human cultures are, of course, dramatically different. Well, what's the reason for that difference? Well, it's not a kind of you know independent human choice. It's, I think, largely because we have developed in different geographical places with different climates and different environmental conditions. Um, I but think then the reason people, people adjust. You sure. take somebody from a desert climate, move them yeah. to Boston, and sure. uh, they become Bostonians. Yeah. And but that means that our fate is not quite as much in our own control as we want to think. When we think historically and realize that the way the world looks today, you know, where power is centered and all of that is a function, sure, of history, of human choices in history. But it's also a function of geography, climate and environmental conditions. And again, sometimes people say, well, you're saying humans have no choice. We have no will. We have no agency. That's not what we're saying. These are difficult philosophical problems. You know, the free will problem has been around as long as people have been thinking about such things. Uh, we're not trying to solve these philosophical conundrums. We're just saying we have to recognize that, you know, we are animals. That's one of the things in the book we say is, you know, everybody knows human beings are an animal. Homo sapiens is a you know, species like others in some ways. With with a genetic, strong genetic sure. similarities to other primates. Sure. And, and that means that, you know, there are limits on what we can do. I mean, if there were no limits, there would be no life. So uh, that also means that there are forces well outside of not only human control, but sometimes human understanding that shape the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. Uh, and so I think coming to terms with our animal nature, coming to terms with the nature of life, with, which Wes Jackson, my co-author, has always said, the best way to understand life is life is the scramble for energy-rich carbon, he says. And then when we think about that, we think about human carbon seeking. Well, we've gotten really good at it. We found new ways to get at more and more carbon. And part of that uh, you know, does involve choice. 
but part of it is a is biology as well. If the nature of life is to maximize um, the amount of carbon we can extract from the the ecosystems, uh, sometimes it's called the maximum power principle. You know, that's part of our nature. That's part of being, uh, you know, an animal, and we have to come to terms with it. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, one of the basic problems is. You know, we we think we're fancier than we are. I mean, you can see that in individuals. You know, people think they're too fancy. They're usually not a lot of fun to be around. But I think in some ways the human species attributes to itself a kind of transcendent of the the material world that I don't think is healthy. And so this book is just, uh, I guess, attempt at some corrective thinking about questions like human nature and geographical determinism to say they don't determine how we react today, but they did shape us and we have to take account of how they shaped us if we're gonna make sensible policy for the future. Well, we have very little time left, but uh, I wanted to uh, point out that you warned that modern systems are coming to an end and there are many things we believe in, we, we believe we can't do without, such as coffee <laughs> yeah. that people will lose in the coming decades. Why coffee? Well, you know, one of the coffee's my, good for fighting diabetes. I love coffee. You're ta you're pushing an open door here, Leonard. I'm a big coffee fan. But, you know, one of the things we say in the book, uh, trying to promote a sense of humility for ourselves as well as others, uh, is that the moral high ground is a, a very dangerous place to stand. So if you're going to, you know, sort of pontificate morally, number one, it's not very effective. But number two, uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, leads us to forget our own failures. So uh, Wes lives in Kansas. I live in northern New Mexico. And there is no coffee grown anywhere around us, yet both of us are, mm -hmm. uh, you might say, addicted to coffee. So we were, we were looking for an everyday example of how in a world of fewer and less, in a, in a low-energy world, which we believe is going to be the future, Wes sometimes calls it a, sun, a sunshine future, in which human beings go back to living off contemporary sunlight, not the stored sunlight in fossil fuels. Well, in that sunshine future, uh, we're gonna have to give up things, including things that we recognize we became dependent on very quickly. Now, coffee might seem like a trivial example, but I think the, the difficulty people, and I include myself in this, would have getting off of coffee is, makes it a good example. We talked about transportation, coming to terms with the fact that we aren't going to be able to travel as much as we, we might be used to. All of these things uh, are going to have to be part of that sunshine future. Hmm. And Wes and I were trying to point out our own failures uh, as much as the failures of others. Before we go, you say that you don't sustain hope. And uh, I can see that just in uh, <laughs> recent uh, statistics, the first half of 2022 ranked sixth warmest on record with a global temperature of, of one and a half degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average of uh, 56.3 degrees. So um, with things like the Yosemite National Park wildfire and uh, hurricanes and the like, should, do we have much possibility of sustaining hope? Well, here Wes and I, you know, write about our own opinions about this. But the first question is hope for what? Mm. Now, if you ask me, how much hope do I have that we can sustain 8 billion people at the current aggregate level of consumption? Well, I have zero hope of that. I don't think that is uh, materially possible. Uh, so hope, you know, I, I'm a little sus uh, suspicious of the concept of hope because sometimes I think it leads people to avoid those material realities. So Wes and I provide a kind of skeptical approach to hope. But, you know, in a bigger sense, of course, Wes and I, we both get up in the morning, we go to work, we, we wrote this book, which we think is important. Uh, we do things uh, be out of a, a, a greater sense of hope. Uh, you know, at the end of the book, we quote uh, a poem by Wendell Berry. Wendell, uh, you know, one of America's great writers and an old friend of Wes's. And I love this, this line from one of his Sabbath poems. He says, the young ask the old to hope. What will you tell them? Tell them at least what you say to yourself. And Wes and I wrote this book, I think in a sense, because we were saying these things to ourselves and decided that we owed it to the 
to the young, to others, uh, to, to raise these hard questions, uh, not with false promises or, you know, delusions of easy solutions, but knowing that the struggle to achieve a better world, to promote that equity that's so necessary in a world marked by such inhumane disparities in wealth, uh, and thinking about that in the course of a, what is a truly sustainable future. I have to leave it there, unfortunately. Yep. But my great thanks to you, Wes Jackson, and uh, and our guest today, Robert Jensen, and both authors of many books. The one we've been discussing is An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity, published by the University of Notre Dame Press. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program, would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed uh, over a million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you can get podcasts. You can also check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are really uh, having serious economic problems, including just being able to pay for the tower that we need to broadcast from. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you the unique in-depth content that we bring you here, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, An Inconvenient Apocalypse by Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you for that with a, a BAI tote bag for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, please, we rely 100% on listener sponsors, the only station in New York to do that. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org to play your part in keeping this historic station going. It's tax deductible. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest Edward H. Miller will discuss his new book, A Conspiratorial Life. We'll see you then.